0: Okay, it's February 25th, so I have a question <clears throat> for you. How are those New Year's resolutions going? I stopped biting my nails yesterday. You stopped, stopped biting your nails yesterday? Nails started again. You started again, so you, yeah, because of the Ireland match, yeah, those <laughs> missed eight points by Sexton had me biting my nails as well, but it's all good, it's all good in the end, so, um, so yes, so we and the, our Scottish brothers this morning are... In great form, sorry to our English friends here this morning, did Andy Bennett even show up or is he just, no, he's not even here, didn't even come this morning, he's like, let's pray for Andy, let's, uh... <laughs> so, um, yeah, so it's, 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 it's New Year's resolutions, um, I think probably most of us, uh, if you're still going with yours, great, if you're still going to the gym, well done, um, if you never even started going to the gym, hey, it happens, um, we have our Bible reading plans. We have all these kind of good intentions, right? And, um, and maybe you're this morning, you're like, oh, thanks. I came here this morning to be encouraged, and you've just reminded me that I'm a failure. Uh, and if that's how you feel, then that's okay because you are in a room full of uh, failures. That's all of us. We've all um, failed and are failing um, at plenty of things in our life. <clears throat> um, and most of us, I think, if we were being honest with ourselves this morning, um, the thing that we love about New Year's resolutions and these moments that we can change uh, is that, right? We have hope that we can change some things. We have hope that we can change some things. Um, and so, what is it this morning? If you were to, um, if you were to answer the question, what is it that you would love to change spiritually about yourself this morning? right? <clears throat> so physically, that might be an easy answer, or at work, that might be an answer, easy answer, but, but really between you and the Lord, or, or just spiritually, what is it that you'd want to change this morning? What is it that you'd want to, in your life to look more like Jesus and less like yourself? <clears throat> what, what is it? Which um, uh, affections, a, a word that we use a lot, a word that the Puritans use, the affections of your heart, the things that, that your heart is drawn toward, um, which of those affections would you want to change this morning? Maybe your heart is drawn and you have affections toward things that you just wish you didn't. What is it that would need to change? Um, 2 Corinthians 5.17, Paul writes... Uh, to the church there, and he reminds them of this truth. He says, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new is come. Right? Now, I love that verse. It's such an encouraging verse. Uh, if we're in Christ, we're new creations. The old is past, new is come. But what old affections are still hanging around? Because, like, positionally, that verse is true. It's a done deal already. If you're in Christ, you are a new creation. The old has passed. The new is come. That's all present tense uh, words that he's using there. It's, it's the already of the kingdom of God. And yet, he says in verse 8, he goes on to say in verse 18, all this is done from God who through Christ reconciles us to himself. So this, this work that's being done is all done from, from God. Positionally, that's true of you today if you're a Christian. You are a new creation. And yet practically, I know that that's not completely true. There are still the old parts of me that are still hanging around. I still have old habits. Um, The the spiritually biting my nails habits. right? The the spiritually not going to the gym habits. Whatever it may be, positionally this is true. But practically, um, I'm I'm not... all the way there yet? It's the already, but the not yet part of the kingdom of God, and yet we look at this story today in the city of Ephesus, and massive change takes place there. So much so as this Christianity was creating such a disturbance, um, they they started a riot. They wanted to start a riot in the city, and so I want us to ask the question: What brought so much change in Ephesus? Because I think what we're going to be able to see is actually going to help us answer some of the questions for us. What can help bring about change for us? Um, and so if you, if, 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 we, uh, if you see we started in 10, which is maybe an awkward place to, to start, uh, a new section, but it's basically describing the things that we looked at before, looked at before right? What the Lord was doing in Ephesus through the, the preaching of, of the Word of God, And it says, this continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And in verse 20, it says, so the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. And this is a phrase that gets used over and over in the book of Acts. The word of the Lord increased. The word of the Lord spread. And so the first thing that we see, if you have that first slide, um, the first reason that uh, so much change was brought about in Ephesus was the word of God increased and prevailed. It increased and prevailed. The word increased and prevailed. There's this awakening that starts to begin in, in Ephesus. A spiritual awakening has taken place. And it's happening. This awakening begins and continues Because of the proclaimed word. Because of the gospel. Um, He he will actually go on to describe this in in the next chapter. He's describing his ministry. So if you skip ahead to Acts 20. um, And Paul's describing his work um, in the city. He said, how did... Um, Sorry, Um, he says, serving the Lord with all humility, with tears and trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, verse 20, how I did not shrink from declaring you anything that was profitable, and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to the Jews and the Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 27, he says, for I did not shrink from declaring um, to you the whole counsel of God, In verse 31 and 32, he says, Therefore be alert, remembering for three years I did not cease, day or night, to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among those who are sanctified. Paul, with the Ephesian elders, describes the work that he did there. And his emphasis is, I continued to teach. I continued to teach you from the word. I continued to to unpack the gospel. I continued to commend you to God and to the word of his grace. And this is really then the crux of the matter. This is when the riot starts. The guy who, Demetrius, the guy who tries to whip up this crowd he, refer, he, refu, he, he um, refers to Paul's teaching. In verse 26, Paul is persuading people. And how is he doing that? He's persuading them with the teaching, with the word of God. And so the word of God continues to increase. It continues to spread. Paul will write to the, to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 1.18. He says, for the word of the cross is folly, it's foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The power of God is found in his word. It's not the only place we'll see here in a second point point two, so hang tight with me if you're a little more on the charismatic end of things. We'll get there. But it starts with the word of God, right? And it says it's foolishness to people who want to start riots, but for those of us who understand we are being saved by it, it is the power of God. The word of the cross, the good news, the gospel. (laughs) Hebrews 4.12 says this about the word of God. It says, for the word of God is living and active. When we read these words from up here and we say, this is the word of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord that is living, that is active among us. It's not just a book. It's not just a a, a bunch of pithy sayings. It is something that is alive and active. It's an active agent in the church of Christ. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the hearts. It's the word of the Lord. It's the word of Christ that does that. It opens us up. Like a surgeon with a skilled scalpel does. And it actually is able to reveal the discerning of our thoughts, the intentions of our heart. And so the word is powerful. It's a powerful change agent that's used by the Holy Spirit. Imagine the Holy Spirit and the scalpel, this this sword is the word of God that cuts us open. And reveals to us what is inside. And so we don't want to ever underestimate its power in our life. That's why when we gather in smaller groups and missional communities, we're studying um, the scriptures and family meals. That's why in core groups, the R in core is for reading, that we're coming together with the Bible. When we sit, when we ponder, when we think through things, when we think about current events, when we think about social issues, It should be done with our Bibles open. What does the Bible actually have to say about these things? Why? Because the the Bible is powerful. It reveals our hearts. That's why we teach through it. That's why we want to just take chunks of the Scripture and, and teach through that. Why? Because that's where the power actually is. I can try to come up with fancy sermon titles and slick, slick graphics and try to arrange all sorts of stuff, but really the power in the teaching is from the word of God itself. And so this is what begins this awakening, this powerful awakening that's taking place in this, in this secular dynamic city. Remember, this is Ephesus. The temple of Artemis is here. This is... Where Paul is going to be committed to the teaching of the Word of God. And so it's the Word of God increased and prevailed. The second thing that we see bringing about change is God displays His power. Sorry, I jumped ahead of you, Stephen. God displays His power. God is using Paul, even when He's not present, to heal the sick and to free people from demonic oppression. Right, so it says in verse 12, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons, these things that Paul had been using or, or touching, had touched his skin, were then carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. Evil spirits coming out of people. Paul um, isn't, even, isn't even there. Now, you, if you, my guess is probably a lot of you don't watch religious TV. That's probably a good thing. But every now and then, if you uh, turn these on, you'll see these kind of religious hucksters today trying to do something similar, right? Um, These kind of holy prayer cloths. Or if you'll just send in your money, we'll send you these prayer cloths that you can uh, use and and things like that, right? And so this is, um, you remember the last time uh, we gathered um, looking at the book of Acts, we talked about the difference between being descriptive and prescriptive. So this is a descriptive, this is a description of what's happening here. This isn't prescriptive that, okay, well, maybe we should get handkerchiefs. And um, anybody want this? I actually have used it already this morning. So I'm not sure if this is, you know, we just don't go, well, okay, well, let's get someone's handkerchief then and let's pass that thing around and let's see. Like if you pass that handkerchief around, you're going to get sick, not, not be healed from getting sick. So this is a descriptive, not prescriptive kind of moment here. And in verse 11, it actually says who's doing the miracles. Is it the handkerchiefs? Is it Paul? Who's responsible for for these miracles? And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. It's God who is acting. It is he who is displaying his power. And so God may choose to do miracles. He still can. He still does. Um, The fact that you're here this morning is is nothing short of a miracle. Um, That God has opened your heart and eyes um, to respond to his word. We we respond in obedience and faith because God actually asks us to pray um, for those miracles to happen. We believe he does, but we don't demand that he does. We ask him to. Um, we still continue to do that, right? James 4 says, are any, of you, are any among you sick? Ask the elders to come and anoint you with oil and pray for your healing. Um, we do those very things. We've done that just in the last couple weeks. Um, and so we, we continue to do that. We believe God's power um, to be real. But we want real power, not some faux manufactured power, Right? Um, if you have your Bible again, turn to uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy 3, thinking about um, the power of God bringing about change. And this is Paul writing to his young apprentice pastor. He says, but understand this, this is uh, 2 Timothy 3, 1. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. Why? For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Now, that's a description probably of any time in humanity, right? But it certainly describes the society we live in. Now, what does he say? Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid such people. That's his advice. Avoid these kinds of people. And in this list of people who are lovers of self and lovers of money and heartless and unappeasable people are also people that have the appearance of godliness but deny its power. He says, Avoid, avoid these, these kind of people. Man, I really, really hope um, that, that that's never said of us, that that's never said of me. But I I can't help but wonder, are there churches that have the appearance of godliness? Our church is littered with church buildings. Our, Our city is littered with them. But there are times where I have to ask, where's the power, though? Why are they dying? Why are they shrinking? And there's probably a lot of complex reasons for that. But what we ask the Lord for is real power, not faux manufactured power. Something with the appearance of godliness, dressed up as godliness, but no power of godliness. And you get this, this, I think, one of the funniest examples in Scripture of people who are trying to look godly but have no power. You get these seven sons of Sceva, which to me sounds like a real heavy metal band or something. I'm not sure but. These seven sons of Sceva, these were, um, so this is Ephesus, they're attracted to sorcerers and magicians, and uh, it was very common uh, for them to go to kind of sorcerers wanting blessings or cursings, and they would pay them a price for that. Um, And so you have these seven sons of Sceva, and they're wanting to cash in on Jesus's name, right? They see people being healed in the name of Jesus. These handkerchiefs, demons are being set free. This is what they do, they're these like kind of exorcist guys or whatever, um, and they're like, well, we'll, we'll cash in on some of that. Yeah, yeah, Jesus. Yeah, cool. We can do that too. And what do they do? They go into this guy who's demon possessed and they get absolutely, utterly owned by the demon. Just utterly, publicly humiliated. It's not like they went in and kind of just tried and was like, man, that didn't work. And kind of had to like just leave and come up with excuses. Like, they went in and tried to cast him out, and the demon has this conversation with him. They're like, He's like, uh, Jesus, I know. Got that one. Which, by the way, every time you see a demon encounter Jesus in the name of Jesus, they always acknowledge uh, his power, they submit to him, and acknowledge that he's the son of God. And so this same thing. Jesus, yep, check, we know Jesus. Paul, I even know Paul. I have no idea who you jokers are and what you think you're doing here and he, he, he's filled with demonic power, he leaps on them and gives them such a beating, not that they just walk out wounded or that they give up, they somehow end up this battle naked. Now, I've been in a fight or two in my life, but it's never ended with me naked. It's never ended with me nude, right? Now, that's a battle you've lost, and you know you've lost it badly. When you, don't, you come out naked and bleeding, Imagine the neighbors at that house, because they they had to have known the guy's demon-possessed. You don't have demon-possessed people living next door, and you not kind of go, hey, something's a little off there. And then these guys come in, and they're like, time to clean up the neighborhood, and you see them leaving naked and bleeding. Time to look for a new house. (laughs) It's incredible. They tried to have this kind of appearance of godliness, but they have absolutely no power. And, and it's, a, it's a powerful lesson for us to learn because when we try to live the Christian life in your own power, we always lose. We get beat down in that. And it, it's not as dramatic as this. Obviously, Satan's much more subtle in our kind of Western um, culture. But we end up feeling naked and exposed once again. We try to live in our own power and we don't feel like we're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. We just feel like we're naked and bleeding and exposed for who we are. These guys thought they were legit, right? I mean, they actually thought they were. They thought they were legit. They went in there with every, every, expectation, every expectation that it would go their way. But they had no real power. They weren't actually connected to Jesus. These were not of Jesus. They were charlatans. They were fakes. And they were exposed as such. And this this powerfully shows us this reality, the reality and the influence of, of of Satan in the world. But it also shows us the superior power of Jesus over all other powers. Right? There's this contrast in verse in verse twelve, and verse eleven. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hand of Paul. And then skip down what. Um, so that their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. And then you have these guys trying to exercise uh, uh, an evil spirit and he's like, not today, fellas. Not today. This contrast between when Jesus and the power of Jesus is, is present, evil spirits leave. But when we try to have a faux spirituality, there's no... Compulsion. There's no command, because the power and presence of Jesus isn't there. So, what's the result then of this contrast? They're able to see the the Ephesus is, is is able to see this contrast between the legitimate power of Jesus in verse 12, healing, demons are leaving, and the false power of these guys, naked and bleeding, being whooped by a demon. What's the result of that? That we see in the text. Verse 17, and this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, so they all know what's happened to these seven guys, that's embarrassing, the whole city knows, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. So what's bringing about change? The word of God has increased and prevailed, God's displayed his power, and now the magnification of Jesus. The name of Jesus is being extolled in the city. And this is a right kind of fear, right? Fear falls upon them all. Now, this isn't, this isn't the first time. We've been working our way through Acts. So if you've been in this series over the last year, you'll know. God has worked in powerful, mighty ways. He's displayed his power. And the result of that is unbelievers are a little bit in awe of what's going on. And they're much more careful. There's a fear, there's a reverence. There's a recognition of who God is. And this followed other, other past miracles or power demonstrations in Acts. Do you remember? The, the, the one that stands out the most are other people who tried to have a form of godliness but weren't being legit about it. Ananas and Sapphira. We're just as devoted, we're just as committed as everybody else. And it was all a scam, it was a lie. And God acts in dramatic ways in his power, shows his power, Revealed the lie that no one else knew anyway except for God himself. And he strikes them dead in front of everyone. And the result of that was fear fell over the city. <laughs> but this is the right kind of fear. This is an understanding of who God is and, and, and the power of his might. And the name of Jesus is extolled. The name of Jesus is extolled because of that. Jesus is magnified because of that. His power is revealed to be legitimate, while while all others aren't. This is why we want to gather as a church, not just in this, as Andrew said at the beginning, but also as we scatter in smaller groups throughout our city. It's why we want to invite people into our lives as the community of believers so that they can see what the kingdom of God is like. They can actually see the power of the Holy Spirit, the power of God demonstrated in our own lives. We let people see the power of God in our witness. Now, that, that is gonna look a little bit different for us, right? That's probably not gonna end with anybody naked and bleeding and that dramatic. But what would it look like for the world to watch us as God's people? What does it look like for us to demonstrate his power in our lives? In our lives being changed? It could, it could just be in how we live our life sexually. To live our life with sexual purity and integrity. When no one else in the world is. And now we start to bear the weight of our kind of the world's sexual liberty. And we see that the results of, of just sexual liberty, being liberated sexually, isn't all that it's cracked up to be. And so we have pushback, global pushback on that with Me Too movements. Rightly so. But what if we actually just live our lives sexually the way that God intended it? As a counter witness to what what sex was actually meant to be and the power that we'd actually find in that. A community of people who are committed to each other in marriage, where sexual purity and integrity is taking place, where single people aren't using sex as a commodity. What about us being able to be seen as a community of forgiveness and reconciliation? In a world where we hold grudges deeply, our society knows something about holding grudges deeply, whether they be right or wrong. But to have a countercultural witness that the power of God actually enables us to forgive, why? Because we have been forgiven. Because however bad I've been sinned against, it was it, it doesn't hold a candle to what I've sinned against God and the hurt that that actually caused Him. And if He can forgive me of that, how dare I withhold grace and mercy and forgiveness to other people? For people to see the power of God in the diversity of our relationships, most people in the world just wanna hang out with people who are like them or like them. But the church should be different, right? We should have friends and people in our homes and in our lives that make people go, huh? That guy isn't like you at all. They don't have the same interests. They don't seem to have the same, you know, commonality in their music the things they enjoy doing. They might be a different race. They're kind of way out of your age group. And yet the church is the place where we have diversity in relationships. Maybe it's in the power of your work ethic or integrity or your honesty. All of these things kind of creating kingdom curiosity. You don't think that people were curious in Ephesus what was going on? This guy preaching about this, this guy Jesus who apparently resurrected from the dead and now his followers, these resurrection people, living as resurrection people, are able to do something. There's a power amongst them that enables them to live their lives in a way that's markedly different from the rest of the city. Creates this curiosity. And some people will say it's foolish and write it off. And reject the whole thing right out. And yet some other people are are drawn in by this curiosity. God woos them in with the power of his word, with the power of the gospel. This is why Paul writes uh, later on to the church. And he says, hey, like that whole list, people who love themselves, they were lovers of money, they They were unappeasable, that kind of a list. Because there's a a few times that Paul lists these kind of things. But he reminds the church, that's what you once were. That's what I once was. That's what we all used to be. And so the gospel compels us and propels us into worship to magnify the name of Jesus. Why? Because we know that that's what we once were. I once was blind, but now I see. I once was lost, but now I was found. I once was dead, but now I am made alive in Christ. It propels us to worship, to mag- the magnification of Jesus. Right? We've been singing this new song, Jesus is better. In all my sorrows, Jesus is better. In all my victories, Jesus is better. Than any comfort, than, any, than all riches, The people in Ephesus, these silversmiths, as we'll see here in a second, Jesus wasn't better than all riches because they were losing their riches. And it was because of Jesus, and they were pretty mad about it. So as we magnify Jesus, through his word, as he displays his power, it propels us and compels us to worship him in that as we gather this morning in real obvious ways, but as we scatter throughout the city in less obvious ways, the ways that we rightly order our life and our affections, all of these things magnify Jesus and give us opportunities to magnify Jesus as people ask about our lives being ordered in different ways, being prioritized in different ways. We use our sex, our money, our influence, our power in different ways, than the rest of the world. And then you start to see affections of the heart change. The affections of our heart change. You ever, seen a, you ever been around a teenage boy in love? Or did you used to be a teenage boy in love? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. Um, it's a strange thing because they, they start to do weird stuff. All of a sudden, they start to clean the room. All of a sudden, they start to take a shower. And they smell like whatever Axe Body Spray of the flavor of the month is, right? right? They start to use deodorant. The they even get a job. Stuff that their parents have been trying to get them to do for months. Now, all of a sudden, they, that's what they're doing. Why? What, what was the difference? What changed? The affections of their heart. They fell in love. There was someone that, that their affections went to. They started to do these things that before they did begrudgingly because their parents made them. But now he wants to do it because he has a new love. This is exactly what we see happen here. Look at verse 18. The name of Jesus is extolled. Also, many of those who, are now, who were now believers, Okay, so those who are now Christians, came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together. These are their books of spells, incantations, books of the occult, and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found that it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So did the word of the Lord continue to increase and prevail mightily. These were believers now confessing sin and renouncing sinful practices. Why? Because the affections of their heart, the desires of their heart had changed because of a new love in their life. 2 Corinthians 3, um, let me just read, read this to us. This is, I love this. This is Paul writing to the church in Corinth, which by the way, he writes the first letter um, to the Corinthians while he's here in Ephesus during this time. Just putting this timeline together for us. 2 Corinthians three sixteen. But when, one, but when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now, he was talking about this veil, that, um, a veil like a veil over your eyes that keeps our heart, hardened, our, our heart hard, keeps us from being able to see. And he says, when we turn to the Lord, this veil is removed. Now, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. How how our affections change is by beholding Jesus. Beholding Jesus leads you to becoming like Jesus. This is why it's so important. The magnification of Jesus happens, and affections of the hearts are changed. Why? We, because we see Jesus for who he is. The Spirit does something within our hearts. He, it, it takes away the veil. It allows us to be able to see there's freedom that is there. And as we behold the glory of the Lord, the glory of Christ, we are transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to the next. Now, this is so encouraging because there's several things in here. One, it's degree by degree. It doesn't say that as soon as you see Jesus for who he is, that's it, you're just like Jesus. It's, it's, a, it's, what, it's what theologians call progressive sanctification. Sanctification, being sanctified, being made more into the image of Jesus. We are, we're not sinless, but we sin less as we become more and more like Christ. And that's a process that will take you to the grave. We'll not be fully like Jesus until we see him face to face, John will tell us in 1 John 2. But oh, what a day that will be. But until then, we continue to look to Jesus. We fix our eyes uh, on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, and we become more and more like him. And it says this comes from the Lord. And so this is what's happening here. They're destroying their books of the occult. They didn't sell them, and they could have, because they're worth 50 grand, collectively, collectively. So it's costly, and they did it in public. This is this, this powerful public witness of change that was taking place. The affections of their heart were being changed. And so what do we need to do? What needs to be burned in our life? What is it that is still a mark of our old kind of life that needs to be destroyed and should be destroyed because of the affections of our heart? And this is a motive of love, not one of shame. Paul wasn't like, hey, you guys get your books out here, and we're gonna burn all these in front of it, it was it was just a response of love. They weren't shamed into doing it. And so it should be with us. Now, this is so encouraging to see this real powerful response to the gospel that's happening in Revelation, or that's happening in Ephesus. But in Revelation 3. Jesus has a word of warning for this church eventually, right? So this is the beginning of this church that's taking place. It's new, it's exciting, the gospel's taking root, powerful demonstrations, the name of Jesus is extolled, affections are being changed, but then you actually have to live (laughs) your life. And so further down the road, Jesus actually comes back and has a word for them. And this is what he says in Revelations 3, Verse two, he says, I know your works. This is specifically to the church in Ephesus. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive. Oh, no, sorry, that's, um, that's three. That's the wrong church. I was like, that's not right. Two, chapter two, verse two. I know your works. Starts off the same way. Your toil and your patient endurance. That's good. Toil, patient, endurance, that's good. And how you cannot bear with those who are evil, that's good too. All good. But have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false, right? So now the whole seven sons of Sceva thing, they're like, yeah, we don't, we don't do false prophets here. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake and you have not grown weary. All good. But. I have this against you, verse four, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you, reple- unless you repent. This is important. Because even now, Jesus says, hey, hey, there's a lot of good things that you're doing. There's a lot of appearance of godliness you've lost the love you've lost that first love you know the love the affections that were changed that were stirred and he calls them to repent and to go back to that right this is why we uh, at our Ash Wednesday service we this thing that we repeated over and over remember you are dust and to dust you will return repent and believe the gospel. And that is for all of us. These were Christians that were coming, believers who were coming and confessing. That's what we have to continue to do. We have to continue to live lives of repentance and confession. Because the affections of our heart can be drawn away. We can lose our first love. And then as we move on then into our last point. Uh, in verses uh, 21 to 22, just real quickly, um, Paul, um, pr- prompted by the Holy Spirit, um, has plans. Then he, he reveals to return to Jerusalem from Rome. He sends Timothy and Arassus to Cor- Corinth um, with the first letter that he wrote to them. Later he would visit them. And then Paul's going to return to Jerusalem. And the reason he wants to return to Jerusalem, the reason he sends Timothy and them ahead is to prepare um, a relief offering for the poor that he's going to take back to Jerusalem with him. And I love this about Paul, right? Paul cares for the lost. He's evangelizing the lost. He wants them to hear the good news. He also cares for the church. He's writing letters in the midst of this to churches that have already been planted. He's sending people there to care for them, to make sure uh, that they're not going off the rails of which Corinth was, but he also cares for the poor and providing for those needs. He's able to multitask for the sake of the gospel, and that's a good model for us as well. And then the last kind of thing that brought about uh, change in Ephesus, or the evidence of that, is we see the gospel impacted the wider society. Ephesus was the home uh, to the temple of Artemis. It was one of the seven wonders of the world at the time. Um, it was this phenomenal temple um, built to Artemis or Diana, uh, who was a god of fertility, goddess of fertility. Um, the temple's wealth was so overwhelming, it essentially became a major bank. So this is a major financial institution. People were putting deposits. Uh, they were uh, giving loans. It became a financial institution as well. So um, an important city, it was the reputation of the city, and lots of money to be made in the city. And Demetrius then um, gathers essentially the labor union of like silversmiths um, because they were losing money. So they would, the silversmiths would make um, smaller um, images of Diana, smaller little versions of the temple, things that like if you go to um, temples today, you can buy little, you know, trinkets and souvenirs and little models of that. So this is what they were doing. They were selling these things. People would tend to take them home and worship them, things like that. And the impact of the gospel is having such an impact on the city of Ephesus that their sales are down. People aren't buying all of their religious idolatry anymore. They're actually losing money. And Paul's preaching is threatening their business and their reputation and their mind. Why? Because what is it that he, he says? He says, Paul is preaching that gods made by human hands aren't even gods at all. They're not even gods at all. And that's true. And this still happens today. It happens in, in less subtle ways in other parts of the world. This is um, a picture from recent travel to Thailand. I don't know if, I don't know if you can see that. It's basically a small little um, a shrine um, with a Buddha there, and then on the bottom here, you'll see they've left out some lychee fruit, a tin of Coke, and a bottle of water, and uh, um, for that, for the for their god. So, I, what I kind of found funny was, okay, if you're going to do that's one thing, but he can't even open his own drink. Like brother needs a straw. <laughs> You think you'd keep going back day after day and nothing's touched. You'd kind of figure out maybe this isn't actually, um, I'm sure it's symbolic maybe in their mind. But, but this is essentially what's happening. God, Paul's going, hey, this, not a real God. If, if, if you've made him with your own hands, if you've created a God of your own, that's not a real God. The real God isn't made by human hands. It's actually the opposite. That God has made human hands. And so Demetrius, uh, his idols are being threatened here. His real God, Demetrius' real God, in the end, is money. It's when his money is threatened that he springs into action. And what we see here is absolute total chaos. They whip up a mob and a crowd, they go into the theater in Ephesus, which is still there today. You can go and see it. Um, and I love this in verse 32. Um, Now, some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them didn't even know why they'd come together. (laughs) I'm like, Demetrius literally invents Facebook before it even, like, exists. People are just mad, angry, outraged, but they're not really sure what about yet, or why, or I just know I'm mad, and everybody else is mad. Great, let's do this together. And this is what people do when their idols are threatened. They get angry. They get mad, Right? that's true for anything and it's so easy to identify when it's not your idol right so we can all you know stand on this side of the atlantic and just obviously see that america has a gun idol problem but what's ours oh, and that's a little harder isn't it it's a little trickier when it's yours when it's your identity when it's your politics that gets threatened but one way is one way to find out is, what do you get angry about? I'm not talking about righteous anger. I'm not talking about braiding the whip and throwing over a table kind of angry like Jesus did. I'm talking about the wrong kind of anger. And that's probably a pretty good indication on the dashboard of your life what your idols are. When they're threatened, what is it that you get angry about? Paul wants to go in and address the crowd and his disciples and non-Christian friends. Like um, some of the Achaeans are like, no, bad idea. You're not coming out alive. And so God protects the life of Paul. He doesn't go in. Might have made matters worse. And the actual clerk comes in and says, hey, what laws have they broken? They haven't broken any laws. They haven't. This is is interesting because he says they haven't blasphemed our God. They, they've never, they haven't been sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. And that's important because Paul is, is preaching against their God, but does it in a way that they don't see it as blasphemous or sacrilegious. He does it in a way that is still respectful. And they've got no real legal grounds to stand on. He says, listen, if you have any real issue, take them to court. The courts are open. Have they broken a law? Take them in before the courts. And of course, there wasn't any law that they had broken. Because we see how the kingdom of God advances. It doesn't advance with weapons. It doesn't advance with violence. But it advances through the preaching of the gospel with the power of the Holy Spirit and the changed lives of the saints. This is what was advancing the gospel all throughout the region. Jesus equaled the power and life. Artemis, there was no power. It was lifeless. And people were starting to see that by the demonstration of the power of the Holy Spirit, by the word of God being explained. And this great awakening takes place in the city of Ephesus. Paul ends up being there around three years doing ministry. One more slide. J.I. Packard um, basically um, studying the great awakening that took place in the United States in the 17th century with Jonathan Edwards and things like this, uh, and studying different, he, he gives 10 elements of awakening. I think you probably see all of these in this passage as well. Here, here, here they are. Did I skip ahead? Are they up there? Can we put them up there? There they are, great. One, God comes down, right? God's, God's power and his presence are, are manifest um, powerfully there. Second, God's word pierces. It pierces our heart. It does what, what Hebrews 4 says it does. Man's sin is seen, right? Our sin, our sin is exposed. Our, our idolatry is exposed. Christ's cross is valued. We respond to the good news of the gospel. We respond, and, and the cross of Christ is something that is, that is valued, that is seen as a great treasure. The name of Jesus is extolled, and change goes deep. Giving up our idols, burning our, our w- books of witchcraft, and love breaks out. Love breaks out. Joy fills hearts. Each church becomes itself. This is when the church in Ephesus became itself. The presence of God was there. The power of God was there. The fellowship of the saints and communion was there. The lost are found. And Satan keeps pace. I would say all those elements are here. These are the elements uh, of, of, of church planting. Um, Village is what it is today, for better or worse. I, I hope because of this as well that God has met us, that his word continues to pierce us, that we're able to see our sin for what it is, but that we don't just, we don't hunker down on that and, and, and focus solely on our sin. No, it pushes us to the cross of Jesus. So we're exposed as failures and sinners this morning. And that's good news, because then the grace and mercy of God can be applied to us through the cross of Christ. Change then goes deep into our lives. Joy and love, the church actually becoming itself. Lost people are found. But Satan will keep pace. And so we continue uh, to lean into the power and presence of Jesus, asking for his unity and his protection among us. Where do you find yourself in the story this morning? No doubt all of us, all of us in this room, myself included in that, all of us have to respond to this call, right, of, of repentance, of turning from our idols once again because our hearts are so deceitful and wicked, right? They, they just kind of, the natural gravitational pull apart from Jesus and his spirit is back to these old, old affections again. We can forget the goodness of Jesus. We can forget the beauty of the cross. We give up our habits that actually are meant to keep us looking at Jesus, our gathering together, our time in the, in the word, time in prayer together. Those habits start to fail and wane. and We find ourselves going back to try to find our identity, our comfort, our pleasure, and lifeless idols. So week after week, day after day, moment by moment, we have this call again to turn from these things, (laughs) to believe that Jesus is better. We'll sing that song, right? Which is why we also sing the refrain, (laughs) make my heart believe. I believe, help my unbelief. Maybe today's the first time. Maybe you've never actually turned to Jesus. May today be the day of that salvation. To come from spiritual death to life, to actually see ourselves for who we are apart from Jesus, naked and exposed. And yet he calls us to clothe us in his righteousness. We're going to come to the table together and again be reminded of the gospel through these means of grace, of bread and wine, of body and blood, broken and shed for for us that are followers of Jesus. And may we may we use this as as an opportunity. To hear the call of Jesus to the church of Ephesus to us again, um, that we would repent and turn to our first loves um, in ways that we find ourselves finding that starting to wane. Um, The bread and the wine are a means of that grace again that we get to come and taste and see that the Lord is good to us through the finished work of Jesus uh, on the cross. So let me pray for us and then if you're a follower of Christ this morning, um, you're welcome to come. Um, be reminded, have those words spoken over you once again. The body of Christ broken for you. The blood of Christ shed for you. And may that, again, stir our affections deeply for Jesus uh, to walk and pursue purity with him. Father, we thank you for um, the evidences of your power that we read in the scripture. The evidence of of your word and the gospel not returning void as you promised, that it wouldn't, um, for it doing its job as it does. Father, we um, see you expose the falsity of idols and evil. And we ask that you would um, do that among us as well so that the name of Jesus would be extolled mightily. in our own hearts, in our own affections, in our own families, in our church, as we gather, as we scatter. Father, we pray that that would actually impact the wider society. Father, we know that we are just one church, and so we pray for those other faithful churches in our city as well. Um, Father, our other brothers and sisters, I'm faithful to your word, faithful to the gospel. Father, we would love to see another uh, great awakening, another revival take place. And uh, Father, we know that that seems like such an uphill battle at times. We just confess our, our faith is weak enough, And yet to see Paul and his small team walk into a mighty city like Ephesus, the temple of Artemis, and just For a few years, just continually faithfully teach your word. The power of the Holy Spirit validating that message. Father, we long to see that happen again. Would you do it among us even this morning?